Welcome home. I'm Dr. Tama, a minister, licensed psychologist, and sacred artist. And this is Homecoming, a podcast to facilitate your journey home to yourself. While I will provide weekly inspiration and mental health tips, this podcast is not the same as personalized therapy. I'm so excited you're on the journey. If you want to request specific topics or to submit a poem for me to read on the podcast, email me at homecomingpodcasts at gmail.com. Also, to build our community, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's begin. Welcome home, co-journers. I'm so glad that you are with me for another episode, and I am so excited that at this ending of October, which in the United States is Intimate Partner Violence Awareness Month. I'm excited to be able to be joined by a special guest, healer, psychologist, minister, sister, friend, author, Dr. Vanessa R. Abernathy, who is a clinical psychologist, mindset consultant, and liberation theologian whose aim it is to transform systems that oppress people such that people might rise from surviving to thriving. She provides psychotherapy services to individuals, couples, and families in her California and North Carolina practices. Welcome, Dr. Vanessa. Thank you for having me, Dr. Tama. Oh, absolutely. I love the work that you do and the ways in which you share, not only in person, but in social media. And a big part of the work that you have done is on recognizing the signs of abusive relationships and healing uh, in the aftermath of abusive relationships. And so I know people are usually more familiar when they think of domestic violence, they think of the physical aspect but can you talk some about emotional abuse in relationships? Yes, emotional abuse is really the one that becomes more insidious and it's often a precursor to what often escalates, which can escalate into physical um, and it leaves what we call invisible scars. So it's being diminished. It's being devalued, discarded at times, uh, sometimes triangling in somebody else, making someone else uh, seem like they're better than you so that they may even groom someone else before they totally discard you. But it's a chipping away at the self. It's a way to make you feel less than, maybe blaming you for how they feel if they have a bad day. Maybe if you have an achievement and they feel like you're outshining them, they need to bring you down a few notches. Maybe you're the the focus of a joke. You know, it, the joke is on you at their your expense. It's just the ways of emotionally belittling. Sometimes it's manipulation. And that's the most wicked because it it allows you to start to question your own reality, which I think is one of the most cruel things you can do to someone. And yeah, so it's those yeah. things that don't show up that people mm-hmm. don't see. It's easier if someone had a black eye, someone will pull us aside and say, sis, can I help you? A stranger would even say that. Mm-hmm. But when the wounds are invisible and you're questioning it yourself because it's not physical, it's even can be much more harrowing in those ways. Yes. Thank you for that. And I'm wondering about often people use this terminology that relationships are work, that marriage is work. 
And can you make a distinction between something being work, if that's even how we should frame it, versus something being abusive? So whenever we think about healthy relationships, we think about reciprocating. Right. No one person is carrying the heavy load. You know, uh, Teddy Pendergrass had that song, you know, 50 50. Sometimes it's 60 40, sometimes it's 70 30, but it should not always be on one end of the relationship. No one person should have power, it should be shared power. Even in religious circles, there are verses that talk about submitting one to another, and one is lifting up. One person, you always know the other have your back. So when you're looking at work, it's mutual work and it's not a chore Mm. and it's not a task. It's not, it's work that is worth it. I always joke and say, well, when it comes to prayer, cleaning up and exercise, no one says, oh, I can't, well, most people don't say, oh, I can't wait to do it. But no one says, I wish I hadn't. And when you say, I wish I hadn't in a relationship that you're working in and you get less, the more you give, then that becomes where the abuse shows up. It's the law of diminishing returns. You Mm. keep giving more and they keep giving less. Yes. Great explanation and description. And another piece within relationships you've talked about is the impact of infidelity. And people don't often think about that in terms of the emotional wounding that takes place. And so can you uh, speak to that aspect? And I will do this this disclaimer. I've worked with couples and I've seen couples uh, recover from infidelity. Usually there's hurt on both sides and there's an underlying issue. It's not about the sex. It's not about someone being better, but there's something that someone is often compensating for and they're often objectifying someone else in the course of trying to work out whatever is going on within themselves. But when someone is an adulterer or they are a serial adulterer, then that becomes a problem if it's something that, you know, they may apologize for, but they never address. They never get at what is the underlying issue. But infidelity creates an emotional instability within, you know, I always tell kids, like when your parents have a divorce, it's like your life got hit by a car, but nobody ran to check on you. And it's that way for the partner. When you experience infidelity, it reorients your life and your sense of safety where you didn't have to check over your shoulder. Now you're feeling like the need to be the investigator because things are not as they were understood to be. Often there's a problem, but instead of that person coming to you and we put this problem to rest together, they try to manage it on their own and it ends up imploding the relationship. Mm. So it's very traumatic. Yes. Thank you for that description. And also thinking about the children. Uh, If there are children uh, that are a part of the family or relationship, they're also affected. I know whether people are uh, escaping emotionally, physically, spiritual, financially, sexually abusive relationships, that it's a process. While some talk about the need for resources or a place to live, some talk about the importance of social support, family or friends that are standing in the gap with you. Can you describe what has to happen emotionally for a person to get to the place where they can escape or walk away? 
Well, <laughs> the emotional part has to also acknowledge the biological part. When we attach to people, you know, we bring each other pleasure and we usually attach to this one person and this person may or may not attach to us. So if that never gets triggered in their brain, it's almost as if a light switch goes off and you feel like they loved you one day and the next day they didn't. So you're still attached to them. You're still equating them with pleasure. But then you start to recognize that now the pleasure isn't there, but now it's pain and yet I'm still attached. So part of that is biology. And once your brain gets enough indicators that, hey, this person is no longer associated with pleasure, but pain, then you start to break down the attachment. And a lot of people describe it as feeling addicted. Like, I know this person isn't healthy for me, but I just can't turn away. Well, your brain is kind of betraying you in that in that moment it feels like betrayal but it's really your brain doing what naturally happens in a love relationship so emotionally you have to acknowledge not just how you feel a lot of times we grieve because we no longer have the person that we love but we don't acknowledge the fact that they didn't love us back they were loving us less or they what they were doing really wasn't love it wasn't making me feel more alive more loved or more loving it was really sucking the life out of me and so you have to acknowledge the truth you have to first speak the truth it can help to tell someone else but it starts with telling yourself the truth mm-hmm. telling ourselves the truth so important and Uh, A lot of people may think that's the end of the story. I know that begins the new story, which is how do you rebuild your life in the aftermath? So let's say you're not in it anymore. You broke up with them or you divorced or whatever the circumstance was, you, you got away. It ended. Can you talk some then about the rebuilding process? There are um, two pieces that come to mind. One is after you've given yourself the space to grieve the loss or the rescue or the escape, Mm -hmm. there's an inherent grief in that process. And so it's okay to grieve the loss of what you thought. Usually whoever you divorce is not the person you married. Mm -hmm. And so that can give you a little distance, but you really loved who you loved and your love for them was real. And that may lead to a natural experience of grief. The second piece is you have to uh, deal with and get rid of the inner critic, because a lot of times this person, you know, there's this term that we now realize, which really came from an old black and white movie called, it was a term, it's now called gaslighting. But in the movie, this man was making this woman think that she wasn't seeing this light flicker, but he was causing it to happen. So a lot of times the emotional abuse happens and it's a lot of manipulation, making you doubt your own sense of reality. And so they gaslight you enough that even when they're gone, you're gaslighting yourself. Well, maybe I didn't experience this. Maybe I was being selfish. Maybe I did try to take the limelight. Maybe I am lazy. All those negative things that we say to ourselves, we have to disconnect those buttons and really challenge the automatic negative self-talk that we have. And the second piece is you have to create space for getting the best revenge. And I don't mean like getting back at them. But there has to be some place for anger in the process of recovery, because anger is a human alarm that says something is not fair. It's real or perceived injustice. So I have to be able to say this isn't fair. And once I say that, then I can 
disarm the anger where I don't have to physically harm them. But what you can do to get the revenge is to get back on track because somewhere you were derailed, you were devalued. So you find yourself in spaces where you feel valued. You reclaim your worth. You go back to the source and not just within yourself and other people, but some of your core values within your tradition. I spoke with someone uh, today from a Muslim background and they came from a war-torn country. I said, you have a tradition that has told you there's something that your family has done collectively that allowed you to continue to soar. So reclaiming those values, getting back on purpose, because really your purpose is the best way to reestablish and to get back really at the evil that tried to destroy you. And maybe that toxic person who really wanted to see you fall apart when they walked away or when you finally escaped. Mm -hmm. So many jewels there. And I'm going to go back to the first thing you said, which is the person you divorced is not the person you married. And I think that's so important when I'm working with people, they're looking at the present moment and then judging themselves based on their choice, but what they see at the end is not what they saw or who they knew at the beginning. So can you say some more about that? Some people are emotional predators, and a lot of times it's out of their own sense of trying to survive. They may have very low or little to no ego strength or sense of self besides how they can dominate others or how they can trick others. They may fear that if people know the real me, they're not going to love me. So I have to show up with my representative and he or she may have married the representative. And then when the light switch is turned off or on and the mask comes down, they really start to see there were some flags, but I ignored it. I ignored it for various reasons. Maybe it was misbeliefs within my faith and my values. Maybe it was a sense of obligation or fear or guilt. Whatever it was that was skewing my perception made me ignore what was happening even within myself. And so a lot of times you're when you're in an abusive relationship, you spend all this time figuring out, okay, how are they feeling? What's happening today? What do I need to do? Do I need to be quiet? Do I need to try to disappear? That it takes work and redirection to say, what do I feel? Where am, Where's this showing up in my body? Why do I feel this upset? And then what can I do to care for myself? Or where can I go for support that's healthy and that's not going to be used against me later? Mm, so critical for us to identify those supports so that we can have safe spaces to heal. And then another key word you said was grieve. And many people skip over the grief by either trying to jump into another relationship, by staying busy. Can you talk about the necessity of grieving? Well, I think we ignore that there's two sides to the pain. It's like the pain is really part of a two-sided coin. This is painful because on the other side, this is something we value. We value this person. We value this type of relationship. Even if it's a parent-child relationship, we value that. And that's why it's painful to stay when it's harming you. And it's painful when it's over because you had expectations. You had hopes. You had dreams. You invested usually your mind, your will, your emotions, your, your womb, your finances, all those things. And it, it comes as a loss. And so when you create space to grieve, it's acknowledging that my pain matters and that I don't have to now move forward with the pain. Now, 
when people come to us, it's not a guarantee that they're not going to be in this situation again, but there's a huge harm reduction that's happening. You are less likely. It's like with these vaccines that are going on. They can't promise you you're not going to get it. But if you can follow these preventive measures, if you can be aware and take these steps to care for yourself, you're less likely because you will start to listen to yourself again. You will notice much sooner. You almost can see them coming after a while because once you know, you can't unknow. And the biggest thing to know is yourself. A lot of people in our field, especially in the world of narcissistic abuse recovery, they focus on the perpetrator, the abusive person. But you can only study that pattern so much. It really isn't that deep. You really need to unpack where were the patterns in me that made me ignore the alarms that were going off in me, that made me agree to isolate from the people in my life, that made me put my hopes and my dreams and my pursuits on the back burner time after time after time, and never getting back to what we said in the beginning we would take care of for me once they got to a certain place. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of those earlier life experiences that can lead a person to either not see it or to just hope it'll go away or to hold on in the midst of the mistreatment? Well, a lot of times people grow up seeing people in their lives that they consider selfless or long-suffering, but they're not long-suffering. They just suffered long. Mm. And they didn't see behind the scenes the the real tragedy and inside what was happening. So sometimes it's modeled for them, but sometimes it's the way they perceive themselves and they feel this need to, their sense of, it's as if their locus of control is always external and they always needed someone or something else to validate them. And they may have been overly praised for something they didn't do, or they may have been underpraised and really devalued and put down. And sometimes it's our core beliefs. A lot of times when I work with people of faith, it's not their faith claims, it's the misbeliefs that have been twisted and perverted, right? And sometimes it's culturally. And so we throw out the baby with the bathwater because one thing was used inappropriately. But when we find out what the truth is and figure out that we can't, even hide behind our knowledge. Because a lot of times we think, well, if I just know a lot, then these things won't happen to me. But that's not the case. As a fourth generation survivor of domestic violence, the women before me were all physical. And so that I could see, but the emotional pieces I didn't. And I thought as an educated person, well, if you know these things, then it won't happen. But there's a difference between knowledge skill and awareness. There's an awareness that we need. And if we can encourage that, even in our children, to have the right to their own body, to have the emotional vocabulary, to communicate what's happening with them, getting them to narrate words that they, if you see an emotion on them, narrate that feeling so that they can name it another time. A lot of times we've lost our emotional vocabulary. We don't know how to identify and validate our own emotional experience. So it's easy to notice, not it's easy to ignore when someone else doesn't, right? But once you start to do that and you can identify the misbeliefs and reclaim that emotional vocabulary, you can come to the table with, with more equal footing and sense of self and and a sense of worth that you can see that some people are just time wasters, mm-hmm. if not life wasters, but definitely time wasters. And so to shift our mindset, can you talk about the benefit of therapy that people 
may gain as opposed to I'm I have friends or family, right? A lot of people say I don't need a therapist, I have friends. So can you talk about that? <laughs> well, I have to I tell people therapy is the one place where it's all about you. You don't have to come in and know if I've had lunch, if I'm having what kind of day I'm having. It's not about me telling you what to do and advising you. We just know the right questions to ask and we do it with with a backing of history and research and trial and even the ways that we challenge what is established in our field, but it's totally dedicated to you. That is a sacred space and it works within the therapeutic space. So if we try to take it out of the space, like you may really vibe with me and I may say, I just love Dr. Tama. I feel more alive, more love and powered. I'm so assertive when I leave her office, but it works because it is about me. But as soon as I try to kick it with her in the community, it shifts because she's a person and she needs to be in reciprocating relationships herself. And so therapy is different in that way. And it is time spent with someone who has focused and invested in learning the behaviors, the thoughts that can be life-giving and life disrupting. So it's a very special place. I I don't take it lightly that I get to journey with people along their healing and health and reclamation of life. Because it's not just about what's not working, but what works well and how to maintain it. Yes. So in addition to therapy, which is all about that person and their healing and reclamation, can you say one or two kind of self-help strategies that people can do in addition to therapy or on their own? I think that maintaining uh, awareness of the impact of trauma, so not walking around with the trauma lens and that seeing that everything is, is traumatic, but being aware when certain sights and sounds and smells may make you feel as if you're back into a space. I think that the best way to keep your mind in the present, right? is to acknowledge what has happened in the past. You can't ignore it. You don't want to, but you don't want it to derail your whole day. If you don't want to go to therapy, if you can just say, hey, I'm having this thought and how can I create space for it instead of trying to push it down? Because pushing it down really isn't helpful. It's going to come up and it's going to come up on the most inappropriate times and ways and threaten everything else that remains. But if you can find a place where you're just able to be without judgment, even the judgment of yourself, you're able to move forward. I also believe in gratitude. If you can find at least two things to be thankful for each day, that is a great anti-worry buster (laughs) because so much of what's happening I've, I had a, a there's one uh, woman of God in North Carolina. She says that anxiety is envisioning your future without God. Like if you can envision your future, you feel powerless. But if you can find something, maybe it's love. Maybe it's the pursuit of the people you want to serve. Even in that, you serve them as a self, not as a sacrifice. And I think if we can hold on to self, knowing that I am a change, an agent of change, and I matter, then I don't have to blend in and, and sacrifice myself for the for the healing or prosperity of someone else. Oh, thank you so much. I'm holding on to these jewels of giving ourselves permission to grieve, changing our mindsets, thinking about our purpose, 
and then gratitude for what remains and for ourselves, the fact that we survived and the fact that we are uh, on this journey of reclamation. Just before we close, if you can just share how people can stay in touch with you and if you want to tell them about your ebook or anything else. So my favorite, one of my favorite places to hang out is uh, Instagram, but I do have, I have a private practice link and it's, I can't remember. It's like Monarch. It's with simple mm-hmm. practice. I can't remember. I don't know. Yeah. It's a long link, but <laughs> on Instagram, I am doc, dr underscore v underscore Abernathy side p s y d and. I'm on Facebook, Vanessa Abernathy. I'm on Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram are usually where I hang out. And I also have an ebook. It's on Amazon. It's called Unbaitable You, and it's keys to thriving after narcissistic abuse. And it's just some very basic introductory ways to start thinking and also thinking theologically. I work with women of different faith backgrounds, and I help them think within that framework what healing looks like, what love looks like, and what recovery looks like. So we don't spend all of our time in understanding what happened. We also want to know where am I going? Where was I going that I was such a threat that this, you know, evil in the world needed to try to stop me and slow me down. So Mm, that's a very important part of the work. Yes. And the website is meetmonarch.com. Thank you so much. <laughs> I just share it out. <laughs> but but all those links are accessible on my Instagram page. If they just click the link, click the link tree, they'll see different options where's where they might hear replays of me, but also where they might find the book as well. All right. Well, for survivors and supporters of survivors, I invite your soul to tell your heart mind, body, and spirit, welcome home.